Well, I appreciate uh, Chris and the music team introducing us to a um, modern-day Christmas carol that was written by Matt Papa and uh, Matt Boswell, guys that uh, we sing a, a number of their songs, His Mercy is More, and um, can't remember the, the long one we sing about uh, the gospel, um, but it sounds very similar to this song, what uh, these guys put together. I appreciate their commitment to write uh, fresh biblical lyrics for us to sing as the church in our generation. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, and I was um, toying with the idea of punting Romans today and doing something Christmassy, but uh, you'll have to come back on Christmas Eve to get the Christmas message, but uh, it was, I, I kind of felt like we were a kind of a freight train running along here in Romans chapter 9 and 10, and I didn't want to hit the brakes uh, for Romans 11 because it just flows so uh, perfectly into this next chapter, Romans chapter 11, and uh, this very unique section of the New Testament and really... Um, all of God's word, Romans 9, 10, and 11, serves a very special purpose. And we are going to learn more about that purpose this morning as we look at the first 10 verses of Romans chapter 11. Let me read them for you, and then I'll pray, and we'll talk about them. Romans chapter 11, verse 1. Paul writes, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people from whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained. But those who have chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Father, we're so grateful that no matter where we are at in your word, it, it is the the Christmas story. It's the, the good news of you coming down in human form to live the life that none of us could ever live and die the death that all of us deserve to die so that those of us who repent and believe and trust in Christ's work alone in our place can experience the forgiveness of sin and have the hope of heaven. And we know the whole point of the book of Romans is to clarify the gospel, this good news of how you planned out from eternity past who you would save and how you would save them. And so, Lord, would you grant us grace as we wade into another challenging chapter we pray by your spirit you would illuminate our minds, help us to understand what Paul meant by what he said here and what these Old Testament quotations refer to today and how this message should be applied uh, and put into practice in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a story told about Frederick the Great, who served as the king of the German state of Prussia back in the mid to late 1700s. And through the influence of the French philosopher Voltaire, 
Frederick had become skeptical of Christianity and the reliability of the Bible. And so one day he was having a heated discussion with his chaplain on the veracity of Scripture. And Frederick said, quote, if the Bible is really true, it ought to be easily proven. So often when I've asked for proof of the inspiration of the Bible, I've been given some large tome that I have neither the time nor the desire to read. And then he said this, if the Bible is truly inspired by God, prove it in a single word. Well, his quick-witted chaplain said, I can do that, your majesty. And Frederick was astonished by that response. And he asked, what is this magic word that carries such a weight of proof? And the chaplain responded, Israel. Israel? Is that how you would have responded? You see, the existence of the nation of Israel after all these years, and after all that she's been through, is one of the greatest evidences that the words of the Bible or the words that the Bible attributes to God are definitely his. Israel's story of survival through the ups and downs of the past 4,000 years proves that the word of God is true and that God is faithful to keep his promises. There's a reason why Israel has always been and will continue to be at the center of world history and at the center of divine revelation. One commentator put it this way. Indeed, Israel is considered to be nothing less than a miracle as far as nations are concerned. Israel could have vanished from the world stage many times in the course of history. No other nation in existence at the time of Israel's founding has survived what she has survived. Genocide. Removal for nearly two millennia from their homeland. Persecution, the repeated destruction and rebuilding of the capital city. Israel's existence could be classified as miraculous, but in truth, only God does miracles. How do we know that it is God who is behind Israel's continued recoveries from near extinction? Out of hundreds of scripture references pertaining to God and his relationship to and plan for Israel, perhaps God's words through Jeremiah say it best. And I want to invite you to turn with me to Jeremiah just for a moment. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 35 through 37. Jeremiah chapter 31 verses 35 through 37, and here we are in the context of the prophet announcing the new covenant, the new promise that God was going to make to the nation of Israel in the future. And he confirms this new covenant in verses 35 through 37. He says, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also will cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. In other words, when the sun, moon, stars, and oceans cease to exist, the nation of Israel will cease to exist. Which, by the way, isn't going to happen anytime soon. (laughs) Or when the heavens and the earth can be accurately measured and fully explored, which will never happen, the nation of Israel will be discarded by God. 
God's point is that his chosen nation will exist forever since he promised to never forsake them or abandon them. You may remember that this new covenant was announced by Jesus Christ when he initiated the Lord's Supper in the upper room with his disciples. Luke 22 Verse 20, he said he took the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup which is poured out for you is what? You remember? The new covenant in my blood. The small band of Jewish fishermen and tax collectors were the first to experience the effects of the new covenant along with the 3,000 Jews who were later saved at Pentecost. And ever since then, the number of Jewish Christians has grown. And in the last days... Jews will be regathered to their ancient land of Palestine and experience a national revival when Christ returns. And they will fully recognize Christ as their Messiah and submit to his rule over them and he will establish his earthly kingdom in Jerusalem where he will reign for a thousand years. In other words, even though the vast majority of Jews have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, God has not rejected them. And in the end, he will restore the nation of Israel to himself. The reason I believe this and teach this and why this is what the doctrinal statement of our church states, that there is a future for Israel, is because of all the promises of blessing that God made to Israel throughout the Old Testament haven't been fulfilled yet. And if we hold to a a literal, historical, grammatical method of interpreting the Scriptures, if all the promises of cursing that God made to Israel were literally fulfilled, then all the promises of blessing He made to them must be literally fulfilled as well. Now granted, some of the Old Testament promises to Israel have been partially fulfilled in the present church age. And yet, despite what some sincere Christians believe and teach, the church is not the new Israel. I'm talking about covenantalists, our brothers, who hold to what is commonly referred to as covenant theology, insist that God is finished with Israel. And that the church is permanently replaced Israel and all the promises that God made to Israel no longer apply to Israel, but now apply to the church. Dispensationalists, on the other hand, insist that God is not finished with Israel, that he has simply temporarily shelved her and has entrusted the church with her responsibility to be a witness for him in this world, particularly to woo and to win the Jews back to Christ. And what we have here in Romans chapter 11 may be the strongest argument in the New Testament that God has not done with the Jews. That Israel's best days are still to come. Because Paul devoted this entire chapter to giving evidence that there is a future for the nation of Israel. And this comes as quite a surprise because he just got done providing what seems like a a discouraging and perhaps disparaging assessment of Israel's present rejection of Christ in Romans 10. But as we transition to to chapter 11, Paul now gave an upbeat prediction of Israel's future restoration. Particularly in verse 26, he says, and so all Israel will be saved. More on that later. Well, what does that mean? Well, we'll get there. We'll talk about it. But at present, there is a remnant of Jews who believe in Jesus as their Messiah, while the rest have been hardened to the truth in order to provide time for Gentiles to be saved. But as soon as the the fullness of the Gentiles has come, and the nation of Israel has been made sufficiently jealous by the way God has focused his attention on saving non-Jews, there will be widespread repentance and regeneration among the Jews at Christ's second coming. 
In other words, Israel's rejection of God and God's retribution of Israel is not total, nor is it final. And Paul describes or proves that Israel's rejection of God and God's retribution of Israel is not total in verses 1 through 10. And then he proves that it's not final in verses 11 through 32. And both of these sections key off two questions. The first question is in verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? And the second question is in verse 11. I say then, did they not stumble so as to fail, did they? Which, by the way, are logical questions in light of what Paul just got done saying about the nation of Israel at the end of chapter 10. Remember in verse 21, but as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. He was quoting Isaiah there, and Isaiah was portraying God as standing all day long with his hands, hands outstretched, begging the nation of Israel to come to him, but they stubbornly refused to repent and believe. Now, someone might naturally assume then that since the Jews, by and large, have rejected Jesus as their Messiah, then God must have completely and permanently rejected them. But for starters, here in verses 1 through 10, Paul provided four proofs that God has not rejected the Jews entirely. He sovereignly selected a remnant who acknowledges Jesus as their Messiah, and he has partially hardened the rest. What are these four proofs? The power of God's redemption, number one. Number two, the permanency of God's relationship. Number three, the presence of God's remnant. And number four, the purpose of God's retribution. Let's look at the first proof that's found in verse one, the power of God's redemption. Paul says, I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? That word rejected literally means to thrust away from yourself, to to, to cast off or cast aside or dis, to discard. Throw it away like some useless trash. Which, by the way, is essentially the same issue that started this whole section. If you remember back in chapter 9, verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, so even though Israel has rejected Jesus as their Messiah. It's not like God was taken, caught off guard by that and that now all these promises that he made to them will not be fulfilled in them. And so Paul answers with his classic, may it never be, which was the strongest negative in the Greek language. God forbid Perish the thought. It's absolutely inconceivable, not to mention totally impossible, for God to renege on his unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 22, Samuel said, For the Lord will not abandon his people on account of his great name, because the Lord has been pleased to make you a people for himself. Psalm 94, 14, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And besides, if God had abandoned his people, then how in the world did Paul get saved? That's his point. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Paul used himself as exhibit A to prove that God has not discarded the Jews. Paul was a Jew. No one was more Jewish than Paul. And yet God mercifully and dramatically saved him. Paul describes his testimony in Philippians chapter 3, 
circumcised the eighth day, verse 5, of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. I mean, it doesn't get any more Jewish than that. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as lost for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. And here it is, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. So Paul was a... Jewish Christian, a Messianic Jew, as they're often called, a Jew who has accepted and embraced Jesus as the Messiah and received the righteousness that God provides through faith in Christ rather than trying to work your way into a right relationship with God, getting to heaven through your own self-effort. But here was the the most Christ-hating Christian-killing Jew who ever lived, but God miraculously redeemed him. And I love how Paul shares his testimony at the beginning of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. In other words, Paul was saying here that he was living proof that no one is beyond the reach of God's grace. If God could save him, he could save anybody. So I ask you, do you know of somebody in your life who seems like the last person on the planet that would ever come to know Christ? Do you know someone like that? I'm going to encourage you with Paul's example here that God is able to radically save the most evil, wicked, hard-hearted person that you know. So don't ever give up on anybody. Keep fervently praying for them and frequently sharing with them and faithfully living out the gospel in front of them. As long as they have breath and as long as God is God and the word of God is true, there's hope. I don't think it was just that God saved Paul, that Paul was referring to. In fact, he mentions it in 1 Timothy chapter 1. It was also the fact that he had called him and appointed him, put him into service as the apostle to the Gentiles. One commentator made this note that Paul represents not merely the fact that a Jew can become a believer in Jesus the Messiah, rather Paul as a Jew has become the missionary to the Gentiles. In him, then, there is a strong argument for Israel's future hope as a people. And then Cranfield, who is the classic commentator on Romans, expands on this thought. He said this, quote, what Paul has in mind is not just the fact that he, a Jew, is a Christian, nor yet that he who has been so fierce an opponent of the gospel is a Christian, but the fact that he, a Jew, is God's chosen apostle to the Gentiles. For God intending only to save a mere handful of Israel, had he really cast off the people of Israel as a whole, would he have chosen an Israelite to be the apostle to the Gentiles and the chief bearer of the gospel message. In his person, the missionary 
in, in Paul's person, the missionary vocation of Israel is at last being fulfilled. And Israel is actively associated the work, with the work of the risen Christ. There is a more cogent evidence of God's not having cast off his people than is the simple fact that one particular Jew is, has come to believe. In other words, this is, this is more than just the fact that Paul came to know Christ. The fact that God said, hey, by the way, you're not only, I'm not only going to save you, but I'm also going to appoint you to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And through you, Israel is going to fulfill their purpose of reaching the Gentiles through one man. And so the first proof here is the power of God's redemption to save Paul and to call him into service to reach the Gentiles. Secondly, the second proof here is the permanency of God's relationship. The permanency of God's relationship. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And that word foreknew is a, is a tricky word. We've already seen it mentioned. Paul mentioned it back in verse 29 of chapter 8. Romans 8, 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So this golden chain of salvation is triggered or begins with this word foreknew. And again, we have to be careful how we interpret this. We said when we were back in Romans chapter 8 that this does not mean that God knew ahead of time who would choose to repent and believe and, and consequently chose them to be his children. That is incorrect both theologically and grammatically. From a theological perspective, when God looked down the corridors of time as it's often uh, uh, interpreted or explained, well, God just looked down the quarters of time and saw who was going to become a Christian, and he chose them. Well, when God looked down the quarters of time, he didn't see anyone seeking him, let alone choosing to repent and believe in him. Psalm 14, verse 2, the Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Paul quoted that in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. Furthermore, if foreknew means that God looked down the quarters of time and chose to save those who knew who we knew or saw would receive salvation, then salvation is based on our action, our work, our merit, rather than on God's grace and mercy. In other words, his choice of us would be in response to our choice of him. Whereas the Bible clearly teaches that our salvation was sovereignly initiated by God, not us. His choice of us was not predicated on our choice of him. John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so if that's not what foreknew means... What does it mean? Well, if you look into the, the language, the Greek language here, and even some of the Hebrew language, um, the word foreknew communicates more than just intellectual knowledge. It's not, that, it's not just some prior knowledge of people's actions or decisions. It's talking about how God knows people personally. It refers to God setting his affection on us to enter into an intimate relationship with us. That's how the word know was used in the Old Testament. You may remember me mentioning this. It's even used in the context of sexual intimacy between a husband and wife. Genesis 4.1, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. You fill in the blanks. What is knew Eve meant, Right? Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you. I obtained or ordained you a prophet to the nation. This was God's word or call to Jeremiah. 
And then Amos 3.2, talking about Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, I chose you out of all the families of the earth. And that's what Moses clearly records in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession. Out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. So for God to reject Israel as was potentially implied here, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. For God to reject Israel, he would have to unchoose or unknow them or unset his love upon them. But we know God's love for Israel is unable to be revoked. In fact, right here in Romans 11, look at verse 28 and 29. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. Talking, about, talking to the Gentiles about the Jews, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And so this is strong proof that God has not rejected Israel, that there is a future for Israel because of the permanency of God's love relationship with them. A third proof is the presence of God's remnant. The presence of God's remnant. And Paul goes on to say that he's not the only Jew who was saved. He wasn't the only Messianic Jew or Jewish Christian alive. And he goes back to the Old Testament to prove that. Notice he says in verse 2, Or do you not know what the Scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? So Israel's present situation when Paul was writing was similar to how things were during the time of the prophet Elijah. In fact, they still are to this day. Ahab, Israel's king, was worshiping Baal and persecuting anyone who remained faithful to the Lord, which led most of the Israelites to turn away from God to idols. I mean, who's going to keep worshiping God if you're going to get killed? And the conditions were so bad that instead of praying for Israel, Elijah prayed against Israel. Notice how he pleads with God against Israel. And eventually, Elijah, if you remember, had a showdown with the, with the prophets of, of Baal on Mount Carmel when they took turns trying to call down fire from heaven. And uh, God, Jehovah God, clearly won the day. And the day ended with Elijah slaughtering all of the 400 prophets of Baal, which hacked off Ahab's wife, Queen Jezebel, and then she vowed to kill him. And so he fled into the desert and was deeply depressed, even suicidal, asked the Lord to take his life. And in that context, 1 Kings 19, Paul draws a quote here, verse 3, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response? So it appeared to Elijah in that depressed state that he was in, that he was the only one who remained true to God, that he was the, the lone voice of God. He was the last faithful prophet. But notice God's response, verse 4. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. The situation wasn't as dark. It wasn't as bleak or desperate as it appeared. God reminded him that there were 7,000 
men who had refused to follow the rest of the nation in worshiping Baal. But notice how Paul takes that interaction that Elijah had with God and relates it to the present state of Israel. In other words, what was true then is true now. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. He mentioned this remnant back in chapter 9, verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. And if you remember, we talked about this, that God never intended his promises to Israel to include all the biological descendants of Abraham. There's, a, there's an Israel within an Israel. We're talking about spiritual Israel. We're talking about the group that, of Jews that he sovereignly selected to be saved and to be part of his faithful remnant. Now, I'm assuming you, you're aware that that term remnant uh, is a very important concept. Um, it's an important theme that's weaved through the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. You might remember in Isaiah uh, chapter 6, verse 13, uh, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13, in that classic call of Isaiah, uh, when he saw the Lord and he was commissioned uh, by the Lord and uh, he was, um, well, let me just read it to you. Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening but do not perceive. Keep on looking but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise I might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and return and be healed. That's not what you want to hear at your ordination. Somebody, you know, they're all laying their hands on you and saying, hey, you're gonna, we're going to pray that God's blessing upon your ministry. Oh, just by the way, no one's going to listen to a word you say. They're not going to do anything you tell them to do. And so Isaiah says, verse 11, then I said, Lord, how long? That's a good question. So how long is this going to go on? How long am I going to have a fruitless ministry? He said, until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Talking about until God judges the people of Israel. Yet, verse 13, there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. That's the theology of the remnant right there in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 13. Last week, I mentioned a, a ministry, an evangelistic outreach to Jews called Jews for Jesus. And um, David Brickner is the executive director of Jews for Jesus, and he wrote an article titled The Remnant and the Rest. Yes, I stole his title, and I'm a man enough to admit it, okay? It was a good title, The Remnant and the Rest. But listen to what he said in his, in his article. He said, in the Hebrew scriptures, the word remnant usually describes those among the nation of Israel who survived the calamity of God's judgment or remained faithful to the Lord. The remnant is the minority of the nation while the rest are the majority. The term remnant is often used synonymously with the elect of God. God set them aside to not only bless them, but to make them his messengers of grace to the rest of the nation. Regardless of the nation's disobedience to the Lord and the fearsome judgment that resulted, God always saved and set apart a remnant for his purposes. That's what Paul's talking about here in Romans chapter 11. And he goes on to say that those who are part of his faithful remnant are the special objects of his grace. In other words, they didn't 
deserve to be part of the remnant and they didn't earn the right to be part of the remnant. Notice he says, verse 6, but, it is, but if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. He's continuing on with the thought there at the end of verse 5. There is at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Not based on their choice. Again, we have the doctrine of election here. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. God doesn't choose those who are saved based on who they are, their ancestry, or what they do, their accomplishments. It is only by his free, sovereign grace. Paul said it elsewhere, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace are we saved through faith. It's not of ourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. And then to Timothy, he wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, that we are saved and called with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So in other words, we can do nothing to initiate or precipitate our salvation. And when, I love that line there, otherwise grace is no longer grace. Someone said it this way, grace and works are mutually exclusive. You can't have both. They don't mix. A gift cannot be earned. What is free cannot be bought. What is unmerited cannot be deserved. And so Paul gives proof that God's not done with Israel because there's a remnant, a chosen remnant that he has preserved and is preserving. And then the final proof here, fourthly, in verses 7 through 10, is the purpose of God's retribution, the purpose of God's retribution. Notice he says, what then... What Israel is seeking, it is not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. Again, he's just repeating himself. He's already said this in chapter 9, verses 30 to 32. What shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith, but Israel putting a law, pursuing a law of righteousness did not arrive at the law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as, it, as though it were by works. Chapter 10, verse 2, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, that they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. So he just said, hey, the, the Jews have, have been zealously trying to get right with God and stay right with God, and yet they failed to obtain a right standing before God, why? Because they sought it through their own self-effort instead of through faith alone and the finished work of Christ. And since, and since the Jews have persisted in thinking that they can make themselves righteous through their own good works... God has punished them by hardening their heart. The word that's used down in verse 9 is retribution, which is the same concept that Paul introduced back in chapter 1 when people reject God's clear revelation of himself, he gives them what? Over. Three times God gave them over to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a depraved mind. This is the same concept now in chapter 11. Paul, remember this in uh, Romans 9, he talked about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. 
and again, we talked about this. This is a challenging concept to get our minds around, but, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart as retribution or payback for him hardening his own heart. And another commentator said this, quote, one of the great mysteries of Scripture is the coexistence of God's sovereign preordination and man's personal accountability. God's judicial hardening of a man's heart is never separate from that man's hardening of his own heart. The classic New Testament example, if Pharaoh is the classic Old Testament example, the classic New Testament example is Judas. Luke chapter 22, verse 21, when Jesus revealed that one of them was going to betray him, and they were all trying to figure out who it was. Luke chapter 22, verse 21, but behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with mine on the table, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, this has all been predetermined by God in eternity past. It's going down just the way God planned it to go down, but woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. In other words, God held Judas personally accountable and responsible for betraying his son. So what does this mean to harden when it says that the rest were hardened? The idea here is is, is becoming calloused. And I'm sure you've all had a callous. I've got a number of calluses right here um, on my palms from working out, right? And it's just doing something over and over again, right? Um, there's friction and it just, and your skin just begins to, to build up and it's just, get this, you know, it gets hard, this thick skin. And, and you, can, you can actually like peel it off and you can't even feel it, right? You can stick a needle in it and it doesn't even phase you. Why? Because it's become insensitive. It's become unresponsive. And that's the point here that when we hear God's word over and over again and don't respond to it or we sin over and over again and don't repent of it, it's like our hearts get covered with thick skin and we become insensitive and unresponsive to God. And because the nation of Israel failed to respond to God's word and failed to repent of their sin, they suffered and continue to suffer from what's called judicial dumbness or blindness or deafness. And Paul says this is exactly what the Old Testament predicted would happen. Verse 8, just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not and ears to hear not, down to this very day. Paul was quoting Isaiah here when, Isaiah 29, 10, when he was warning the people of Jerusalem that because they failed to listen to the prophets, their ability to hear was impaired by God. The idea here, uh, when it says God gave them a spirit of stupor, it's like, they, uh, it's like you, you've become numb as a result of some sting. Like something stung you and you're numb now. Or it actually says in Isaiah 29.10 that he will put you into a deep sleep. It's like you're in REM sleep. Some of you are sleeping right now. You're like, whoa, wait, I gotta wake up. That's me. He's talking about me, right? Moses in Deuteronomy 29.3, this was the other part of the quote here, told the Jews that even though they had seen God's wonders in delivering them from Egypt and preserving them through all of the 40 years of wilderness wandering, they failed to truly love him and obey him. And I just read Isaiah 6, right? Talking about, hey, Isaiah, just so you know, you're, you're going to be preaching to these folks and they're going to they're hear, but they're not going to hear. They're going to see, but they're not going to see. And, and that... Isaiah 6, that portion of Isaiah 6, is the, the most often quoted New Test, Old Testament text in the New Testament. And it's used repeatedly to 
to emphasize that God judicially blinds and deafens those who reject him. In fact, Jesus himself quoted it in Matthew chapter 13 when he launched into his parables, particularly the parable of the sower and the the seed. In other words, that we all hear the message of God's word and, and it all falls on different kinds of hearts and we all have different kinds of responses. And the disciples came and said, why do you speak to them in parables? He says, well, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has to him more shall be given and with and he will have an abundance, but whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, and while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You'll keep on seeing, but you'll not perceive. For the heart of this people, this people has become dull. With their ears, they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart in return, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For truly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desire to see what you see and did not see and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And so what happens? What is the result? Well, notice he quotes David from Psalm 69. David says, verse 9, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Psalm 69 is a messianic psalm. In other words, it it prophesies about the coming Messiah. It's also an imprecatory psalm that pronounces curses on those who would cause the Messiah to suffer. And so what is Paul saying here that the very things that should have been a source of nourishment and refreshment, the table, weren't? That the blessings and privilege which should have led Israel to Christ became a snare, a trap that kept them from Christ? All the practices and observances which were intended to picture or to foreshadow Christ's substitutionary sacrifice in their place became substitutes for the real experience of salvation through faith in him, what should have pointed them to Christ prevented them from coming to Christ. All these things became a stumbling block, a stumbling stone, even as he mentioned back in chapter 9, verses 32 and 33. And so consequently, their eyes were blinded and their backs were burdened with the weight of their sin and their guilt. Look at verse 10. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, I'm glad I'm not one of these guys. You could be one of these guys. Because what Paul is saying here is a universal principle and it is sobering, it is terrifying. When we come to grips with the fact that if we hear the truth of God's word and don't respond to it, the time may come when we will not be able to respond to it. That's why it's so dangerous to come to church every Sunday. I don't know if you ever thought about that. This is the most dangerous place on the planet. Sitting in church with a Bible sitting on your lap, hearing the word of God preached and sung and read and prayed. And it's a scary thing what happens when people sit Sunday after Sunday and listen to sermon after sermon and they never do anything about what they hear. James talks about this in James chapter 1, verse 22. Prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. I know that doesn't happen. When you 
look in the mirror in the morning, right, to kind of see what has to get taken care of before you go out for your day, right? You don't just go, well, it is what it is. And there you go. No, you, you work at it, right? And, uh, and, and, and the point is you, you don't just forget. Well, it's the same thing. We, we, we look into the mirror of God's word and we're like, well, it is what it is. I am who I am. And well, what's for lunch? I wonder what presents I'm going to get this week. It's going in one ear and out the other. He says, don't be that guy, but be the guy who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer. This man will be blessed in what he does. You've heard me say this before. Listen, if you don't, if you don't plan on applying anything that you hear from the sermon, stop coming to church. If you don't plan on applying anything you're reading in your quiet time, stop having your quiet time. Because not only are you wasting your time, but you're also heaping judgment upon yourself. Because you're neglecting the word of God. See, every time we we, we read or hear God's word, we are training ourselves to either obey God or to disobey God. There's no neutral ground when it comes to hearing the word of God. You've heard it said that the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. Something is happening to your heart right now. And it happens to your heart every time you're exposed to the word of God. Your heart is either getting softer to the Lord or it's getting harder to the Lord. We don't have time to read Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3. You can read that. Hebrews chapter 3 verse 12. Take care, brethren, that there not be any, any, of, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called day, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And oftentimes what God uses to soften our hearts is what? Discipline. Discipline. Hebrews 12. Don't despise the discipline of the Lord. Don't, just don't regard it lightly. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. God disciplines us for a moment and it's not joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, discipline is, is temporary and it's inflicted for the purpose of leading us to repentance and restoring us to a right relationship with God and making us more like Christ. God punishes us to restore us and to conform us to him. And that's exactly what he's doing to the nation of Israel right now. He's disciplining them so that ultimately he can restore them. This is the divine purpose of God's Judgment, God's retribution. So while God has sovereignly chosen a remnant of the Jews to come to faith in Christ, he has judicially hardened the rest. But that hardening is not total, nor is it final. God has partially and temporarily harden the majority of the Jews, which is all part of God's merciful plan to include the Gentiles in salvation. He already hinted at that back in Romans chapter 9. I will call those who are not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved, and it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. If you're not a Jew, that's you. That's me. That's Gentiles, he's talking about there. And so rather than using Israel to win the Gentiles, like he originally intended, he's now using the church 
to lead both Gentiles and Jews to faith in Christ. 1 Peter 2.9. Peter says to the saints scattered all over Asia who are being persecuted for their faith in Christ, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. How's that going? It didn't go so well for Israel, and that's why God put them on a shelf and entrusted to us, the church, with their ambassador assignment. And so it's our job, our responsibility, and our joy It's not just our job, it's our joy to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's the message of hope. That's the message of Christmas. And I hope that this message will inspire all of us to take advantage of the many opportunities we'll have in the next week or so to talk to people about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this text that, well, it seems like it's just talking about the Jews, which doesn't really apply much to the majority of us in here, but, but, but it does. And we're thankful for your word and uh, the truth of your word. And we pray that we would never harden our hearts towards your word and resist your word and reject your word but that we would humbly receive it and submit to it and obey it. Lord, soften hard hearts even now. And Lord, give us great joy this week, not only in celebrating the birth of Christ, but communicating the birth of Christ to those who have yet to understand the gospel. Use us, Lord, to proclaim the excellence of him who has called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.